0: We open up in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. I'm going to go through the whole book, pardon me, the whole chapter of Acts 19. So why don't we stand for the reading of God's word, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. The scripture reads, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, That Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus." When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. The title of my sermon this morning is Discipleship, Demonic Stuff, and a Riot, or A Microcosm of Reformation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have in your scriptures. I pray that you help me to preach that which you've given me to set forth. Pray that it is used for good in the hearts and minds of all those gathered here, that they're built up in the faith and that they desire more than ever to serve you in the earth, making their days count upon this land. And we ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You could be seated. So you may remember, Paul had begun his third missionary journey to the Gentiles. Remember we were in chapter 18 last time? Verse 23 says of chapter 18, after he had spent some time there, talking about Caesarea, uh, pardon me, Antioch, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. This is the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. And verse 1 says, Of Chapter 19 says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth. He mentions Apollos being at Corinth. Apollos was a huge figure there at the church in Corinth. Um, And Paul even mentions him in 1 Corinthians. Uh, So he was a big teacher. And of course he had been talked about in chapter 18 how Aquila and Priscilla had instructed him in the more sure way of the faith, because he, like these disciples that Paul is about to meet, only knew about John the ba- up to John the Baptist and didn't know the stuff subsequent to that. So it says, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, the upper regions of Galatia, came to Ephesus. He came to Ephesus. So I want to show you a slide at this point. So you can see, and I lost my little pointy thing with the red laser. I don't know what happened to it. I don't have a cat anymore, so I can't blame it on that. You know how we torture cats with little red laser lights. Um, But here is his third journey. I could do this, right? (laughs) So, (laughs) all right, so he starts here and he goes this way. He's made it through the upper regions of Galatia, and now he's in Ephesus. That's where he is. And then you see Corinth further over. That's where Apollos is at at this time. So, anyway, um, Paul's ministry at Ephesus lasted about three years. It's like a long stay for him from about 53 to 56 A.D. Historians say Ephesus was founded in the 12th or 11th century B.C. by some Ionian colonists. These would be like Pre-Greek people, you know, Greek people, (laughs) Ionians. In 334 B.C., Alexander the Great captured Ephesus, and from his death all the way 200 years later to 133 B.C., it was ruled by the Pergamum kings of his divided Macedonian empire. The last king, Attalus III, willed it to Rome upon his death. And yes, Rome was going to take them over, so rather than have this big fight and a bunch of people get killed and go off to slavery and everything, he just made a deal with the Romans that when he dies, they, they now own it. They own Ephesus. So Rome ruled Ephesus at the time when Paul came along here in 53 AD. The city had two main streams of income for many centuries. One is a port city for trade and travel. But they had this problem. Silt would gather in the river where the harbor was, and it would ruin their trade because ships couldn't get in and out properly. Even the Romans tried to keep the river clear and could only do it for a time here or a time there. It'd fill back up with silt. So the second main stream of income or economy for them was this goddess named Diana. And she was like this grotesque, multi-breasted woman who was probably a meteor that fell from the sky and kind of looked like a multi-breasted woman, and that's what they started worshipping. All through not just Ephesus, but throughout Asia there. They were worshipping this goddess, Diana. Um, They had a huge, massively huge temple to her. It was actually one of the seven wonders of the world. This thing was 80,000 square feet. A massive structure, and we also have a slide showing what's left of it today. Not much left, right? Time rolls on, so you can just imagine. Whenever you live in an epoch or a time, people tend to think, "Oh, it'll always be this way." No, it won't be always be this way. They all get annihilated in the end. <laughs> so things get break down, they get ruined. Life moves on, blah blah blah. So that was like the main stream of income for this place when Paul arrives in Ephesus. And of course, this goddess Diana is going to figure prominent in Luke's narrative here in chapter 19 as we go through this chapter. This will be a big part of his narrative. Verse 2 says, He said to them, you know, he meets these 12 men. We know there were 12 because verse 7 says, Now the men were about 12 in all. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul meets these men. He, Luke calls them disciples. So they must have had an interest in Christ, obviously. But there must have been something Paul discerned about them that led him to ask the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Something wasn't quite right. He noticed it in him. And he was right. Something wasn't quite right because they responded and said, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So it goes on in verses 3 and 4, and it says, And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So Paul explains Jesus to them. And of course, we know Luke, when he's giving this narrative, is just giving us little pieces of it, obviously Paul must have spent quite some time talking about Christ, how he's the Messiah, and on and on, pointing these men to Jesus. And verse 5 says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they get baptized and, as Christian men. They believe this message of the gospel, and they get baptized. And it says, and when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So, some people are, like, stunned by this because they get it, the whole tongue thing in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit was outpoured, in Acts 10, with Cornelius and them, when the gospel is now gone to the Gentiles, clearly seen, and here we have it here, why would this tongues thing be talked about here? And, of course, the Pentecostals and Charismatics seize upon this and say this is, you know, This is a big deal. Some say that's the sign that you've received the Holy Spirit when you speak in tongues. Others don't say that. Rather, what they say is that speaking in tongues and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something subsequent to believing in Christ, that you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe in Christ, but there's this second work of the Spirit called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and when you get it, you speak in tongues. So this is an interesting verse which churchmen of various persuasions address as part of their larger view regarding speaking in tongues. There are those who say tongues have ceased, and there are those who say they have not ceased. Those who believe they have ceased are known as cessationists, and those who believe they are still for today are known as continuationists. I am not a cessationist, as I have never been convinced from Scripture that tongues have ceased. I've read numerous men on this who are convinced that tongues have ceased, and I found none of their arguments even remotely convincing. So I am a continuationist, but I also see and recognize many abuses regarding tongues and the gifts of the Spirit. There's lots of dopey, weird stuff that goes on amongst Pentecostals and Charismatics regarding tongues and the gifts of the Spirit. People actually use those things as a tool of manipulation in the lives of other men and women. And it's very grievous to watch how people are so easily fooled and hoodwinked into believing something is of the Holy Spirit or of God Uh, with anyone who has a scintilla of a brain should be able to realize, well, that's a bunch of phony nonsense. Another argument among churchmen is when does one receive the Holy Spirit? And I mentioned this already. Some believe that is when you speak in tongues. Some Pentecostals and Charismatics actually believe this. Other Pentecostals and Charismatics do not believe this. I used to be a part of the Assemblies of God. The Assemblies of God does not teach that you receive the Holy Spirit when you speak in tongues. You receive, they teach you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe in Christ. And that speaking in tongues and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a work subsequent to the work of the Spirit Um, at salvation. So the belief that you haven't received the Holy Spirit until you speak in tongues is unbiblical. Galatians 3 makes it clear that we receive the Holy Spirit when we believe. And that's why Paul asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul asks in verse 2 of chapter 3 of Galatians, he says, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The answer, of course, is by the hearing of faith. You receive the Holy Spirit when you believe. You do not have to, you know, this idea that you don't have the Spirit if you don't speak in tongues is absolute absurdity. And people actually take this, who believe this thinking, to points of absurdity. Um, I remember my mom um, had some ladies come over to her house. I was a young Christian at the time, And they were charismatics, and they wanted her to speak in tongues so that she would have the Holy Spirit. They didn't believe you had the Holy Spirit until you spoke in tongues. And they literally had my mom say the vowels. Are any kids here know what the vowels are anymore? Uh, A, E, I, O, and U. Okay. And sometimes Y. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So anyway... um, They had her say the vowels, A-E-I-O-U, A-E-I-O-U, and they kept telling her, say it faster, Annie, say it faster, Annie. And then if you say something like that fast enough, guess what? You, like, trip up on yourself. And as soon as my mom tripped up on herself, they said, that's it, that's it. And they all got excited, and they all started speaking in tongues, and they kept encouraging her. And after they all left, I walked out, and I said, so how did that go? And she goes, well... I got baptized in the Holy Spirit and I speak with tongues now. And I looked at my mom and I said, you don't really believe that, do you? And she looked at me, why? Why do you say that? I go, because that's crazy. I said, give you the vowels and you say them as fast as you can and when you trip up on it, then you've got the Holy Spirit. I said, that's just weird stuff. So my mom goes, yeah, I did think it was weird. And she pointed out, yeah, I really doubted it, so I'm glad you said something. And um, So anyway, you have the Holy Spirit when you believe in Christ. You don't have to speak in tongues to have the Holy Spirit. But speaking in tongues has not ceased. There is nothing in Scripture anywhere, I've found, that's convincing that tongues have ceased. Or the gifts of the Spirit have ceased and we see them at work from time to time in the lives of men. The remainder of this chapter shows true reformation in a culture. It shows how Christianity impacts individuals and nation. The rest of this chapter. And the first thing it starts out with is faithful teaching of the word of God. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 of... Acts 19. And he, talking about Paul, went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading, we've talked about that already, concerning the things of the kingdom of God. So this reformation in Ephesus begins with faithful teaching Faithful, consistent teaching of the word of God. But as often the case when you have some success, which he obviously was because he had been there for three months, he hadn't already been thrown out of the synagogue, it says in verse 9, but when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, remember that was the term used for Christians themselves, they called themselves people of the way, before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So the idea amongst scholars is this is the school of tyrant. <laughs> school of a tyrant. Would someone name their kid a tyrant? They believe it was a nickname that was given to the guy that he ruled his school in such a fashion that he was referred to as a tyrant, Tyrannus. So anyways... Paul begins with his usual SOP, standard operating procedure, Jews first, if no headway to the Gentiles. So notice here he doesn't just leave Ephesus because people have hardened their hearts at the synagogue. He doesn't just leave, he goes to the local school, the school of Tyrannus, and holds his teachings there. Listen to me now. Improvisation is an important virtue to learn as a Christian if you want to serve the Lord in the marketplace. Improvisation is an important virtue to learn as a Christian if you want to serve the Lord in the marketplace. You have to improvise. You can't follow the standard way of the American Moose Club church. Notice Paul did not pack up his marbles or his jacks and head home, because some had hardened their hearts there at the synagogue. Many men always have many reasons to quit. I'm a mere man. I know. (laughs) There's many reasons to quit that come your way regarding ministry. But a man whose heart is on fire perseveres. He may take a time out. He may be forlorn. He may be blue for a time, but he can't quit. He continues on, he perseveres with what the Lord's put his hand to do. You look at all the trouble Paul has already had on these missionary journeys, and now this. He's got to be thinking this again. (laughs) I was looking hopeful, I'm here three months, I'm thrown out again. It It can be hard. Rejection's never a one thing. Oh, please reject me so I can feel wonderful, you know. He perseveres. And he continues this Bible study for two years. Look at verse 10. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Both Jews and Greeks. The Reformation in Ephesus begins with faithful, consistent teaching of the word of God. That is huge. That is massive. To have scripture studies with co-workers, to have study of the scriptures with neighbors, to have some form of outreach at the university, at the death camp, wherever, at the Burger King with all the old guys who gather for coffee, wherever your station is in life, faithful, consistent teaching of the word of God is something you should do in regards to others. It's massively important to see reformation take place in people's lives and in nations. So this Reformation in Ephesus begins with faithful teaching of the Word of God. This is always a must for a culture to see Reformation, to see lives and society change towards the rule of the Lord. I always am reminded of what Luther said when Magdeburg embraced the Reformation. Magdeburg, the largest city in Germany at the time, was the first city to embrace the Reformation, and Luther said, we took it without firing a shot, just by being faithful to the word of God. That's what Luther said. This is how important faithful, consistent teaching of the word of God is to see Reformation take place. So the faithful declaration of God's word is important for reformation of lives and nations. And the Lord also uses unusual events to further his kingdom in the earth. Verses 11 through 20 talks about one of those unusual events. The first involves some Jewish exorcists. This unusual event involves some Jewish exorcists who try to use Jesus' name as a magic word of incantation. They learn a hard lesson from it, and the story goes viral throughout the community. Here's what it says in verses 11 through 17. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body. These would have been the handkerchiefs that he used in his work as a tent maker. We know them from history. Same as hankies today, <laughs> little handkerchiefs. The apron being referred to would be the apron that a tent maker or leather worker would wear. So they were literally taking his stuff, his little rags of hankies, his own apron, and look what it says were brought from his body, Paul's body, to the sick and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. That's unusual. That is unusual. Right? Something I've never seen in my day. I've seen hucksters try to sell hankies. Using this verse, I touched it, and now you take it. And you touch the person and they'll be healed. And, of course, if they're not healed, it's because of your lack of faith. They always have a foolproof system for their hucksterism. You know what I mean? So I've never actually seen anyone take a hanky from someone else to someone else and see the person healed. This is unusual. And God uses unusual events to bring reformation within a culture. He uses the faithful teaching of God's word. He uses unusual events. This is unusual. They bring these things from Paul's body. Diseases leave them. The sick are healed. Evil spirits go out of them. And look what happens in verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. So, In Ephesus at this time, magic and witchcraft and all kinds of dark, weird things were prevalent. So these Jewish exorcists think, oh wow, we've seen what the name of Jesus does. We'll just use it as like a magical word. A word of incantation. And we will see people have demons cast out of them. And of course they wanted it for what? Their own self-aggrandizement. They were probably getting paid something for their services and on down the line. We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. So it's not just these, these seven sons of Sceva, there's other Jewish exorcists all... Getting on the bandwagon. And it says in verse 15 about these seven sons, And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. God uses unusual events (laughs) to get men's notice of his kingdom. This is an unusual event. And the story of it goes viral. Verse 17 says, This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Amen? So the story goes viral, and God uses this. It causes fear. So even though people haven't actually converted to Christ... They know about it, and they're like, have a healthy respect for Christ and Christianity because they've heard this story about what happened to the seven sons of Sceva when they tried to use Jesus' name as a mere magical incantation. Now, the American church would abhor people fearing God. They would say, oh no, that's, that's not what we want. And the reason the American church would say fear is a terrible thing, and I've heard them to find any fear of the Lord completely out of existence in the sermons that the churchmen have preached. American Christianity has done this because they've made the Lord into the great peacenick in the sky. That's what American Christianity has done. They've made him into a genie in a bottle for times of need. Uh, Mr. Rogers' sort of fellow who simply wants to be our neighbor. But the truth of the matter is, Fear of the Lord is a good thing for a people and it can often be a starting point for them to actually eventually come to know Christ themselves. So look what happens next. You have this unusual event and this unusual event causes like a massive turning to the Lord. This fear of the Lord is used as an impetus for many to come to Christ and to eschew their false black magic, their false demonic stuff. It says, And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. So many have turned to Christ, and they talk about all the evil stuff they've been into. Look what verse 19 says. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. 50,000 drachmas. That's insane. This was a dark Ephesus was a dark place. And what did I talk to you about earlier? True Christianity confronts the idols and evils of a culture and a nation. Remember I've talked about that? And here you see it in vivid, living color here at Ephesus. The word of the Lord comes, it's taught. This unusual event takes place. All this idolatry, all this demonic stuff begins to cease in the lives of individuals. And this causes no small stir amongst those who want to keep the status quo in place. Because Christianity is spreading, it causes those who want to keep the status quo in place to respond. And that's pretty much what the rest of the chapter is about. The final story in chapter 19 reveals how the love of money is important to men. It shows how the businessmen of that time try to use the magistrates to stop Christianity And this scenario has played out again and again in history where the businessmen and magistrates team up to dispense evil in the land and stem the tide of Christian thought. But in this story, it doesn't go well for the businessmen. Why? Because the magistrates don't become complicit in their evil designs. They were a little different, the magistrates there in Ephesus, than what we have in America today where they're a pack of whores who are all wed to money. What moves the state houses of this country, what moves Washington, D.C., is money. Rich men with evil, filthy designs. Businessmen who are corrupt and sick dogs. Filthy pigs who only care about one thing, their wickedness and their money being promulgated. I saw a documentary recently. It was an hour-long where this guy went over and showed how there was this huge fight with the Romans and the Carthaginians. And in the end, the Carthaginians lost to the Romans. And the Carthaginians despised the Romans, hated them with a passion. But within 100 years, all the Carthaginians had totally become Romans in practical living, in how they thought, and how they lived their lives And you know how the Romans conquered their hearts and minds? Through material possessions, through wealth and ease, through money. The Carthaginians were all assimilated to Roman thought. Their dreaded, hated enemy, they embraced everything. What transformed them and converted them to become Romans was the money. And that is what has happened with many in Christianity. They lived their lives, practically speaking, just like Americans. The Christians do. There's really no difference that's noticeable in how they live their lives versus how Americans live their lives. Because they've been bought and paid for by the wealth of wicked men who are using their corporations and their vast wealth to win everybody to their thinking. And it's reached such a point of insanity now that you have the sodomites viewed as normal. And it's only a matter of time before all these transgender insane people are viewed as normal. That pedophilia will be viewed as normal. It's a total transformation that they're trying to commit. And everything they do is rooted in one thing. Their hatred for Christ and Christianity. So what usually happens is the rich guys get the worst of men to be magistrates. They're a bunch of worthless dogs, bought and paid for, and they do the bidding of the rich men. If you don't think it doesn't happen, you haven't spent enough time over in Madison. You haven't gone to Washington, D.C. lately and seen what it's like. And we as Christian people need to denounce it. Like the prophets of old, call it to account. Decree its judgment. And call men to faith in Christ to follow Jesus and his rule. We need to faithfully teach the word of God, all that it has to say, so we can see reformation in our culture. Not just in our little hovels, our little social clubs called churches, but out in the marketplace, in the halls of the legislatures, in the busy streets and avenues of our culture. That's what we need to do. And it's what we see happening here. So, the businessmen have to respond. The culture is changing. They're losing money. (laughs) You know, people aren't believing this little dopey idolatry stuff anymore. And all this black magic and hocus pocus and nonsense from this false goddess Diana and all the dopey stuff that went on along with her. So, they do respond. First off, let me cover verses 21 and 22 because they're there before we get to uh, this great commotion. It says, "When things were accompli- These things were accomplished. Talking about all the stuff that's already gone on. Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So it's nearing the end of Paul's time at Ephesus. He's making plans for more travel. Verse 22 says, So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy, and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. Stayed there at Ephesus. So he's getting ready to travel again. And then something really big happens. I always call this the red zone. It's like when we're out speaking up for the preborn at the busy intersections. The last 15 minutes, something crazy is going to happen. It usually happens the last 15 minutes we're there. So this is like the last 15 minutes, Paul's at Ephesus, and like this crazy thing happens. It says, the gospel, um, the gospel is having such a huge impact on the lives of individuals that the powers that be must respond. That's when you know you are making headway. The big money people become mad at the Christians. That's when you're making headway. That is. And look what it says in verse 23. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. Talking about Christians and Christianity. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupations and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul, has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. (laughs) This is reformation. This is huge. They recognize Paul, Christianity, are messing up this good deal we got, all this money we get to make. And it's all about the money. So you see that Paul in the gospel, confronts the idols and evils of Ephesus. So much so that the power bases have to respond. Verse 27 says, Demetrius goes on, So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Do you ever notice wicked people always find some virtuous reason for their wickedness? So it's like, they really only care about the money. <laughs> but, you know, we're going to act like it has something to do with protecting true religion. <laughs> you know, goddess Diana, we got to protect her. That's, that's why we're, we're going to do this, not because of the money. The truth is, it's always about the money. The harbor had become clogged with silt, so the number one means of income was Diana. These shrines the silversmiths would make were of Diana, little figurines of her to sell as souvenirs or votive offerings and amulets to those who came to worship her and pay homage to her. And people would come from all over Asia to Ephesus to worship her. And of course, there were many other trades mentioned there in verse 25. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation. There was people making all kinds of money off this the innkeepers for all the people who traveled there, the people selling food, all those people. Made. This is like, it's always about the money, <laughs> okay? We set up with our photographs of the murdered pre-born. What do the businessmen do? Oh, you're ruining my business. I'm totally against the killing of the pre-born, but do you have to stand in front of my business? Can't you go down a block? Yeah. No, dope, we can't, because they're murdering people, And we're going to show them exactly what's happening in hopes that they will see that it's murder. Our photographs stand as a haunting indictment that our nation is rebellion against God. So we're going to continue to stand here, plain and simple. Verse 28 says, as we go on here, Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath, and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord. This theater held 24,000 people there in Ephesus. From the point where they started to where the theater was, the theater was at the end of this massive long boulevard full of shops, colonnades, all the industry, was the main point of the entire city. So while they were walking through there, screaming and yelling, "Greatest Diana of the Ephesians! They were gathering people as they're going down this boulevard, and by the time they get to the theater, there's thousands of people in a frenzy. And they don't even know what's going on. They just know something big is going on and it has to do with Diana. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. They found a couple Christians along the way. (laughs) (laughs) Take them into the theater, see what we can do to them, you know. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Yeah, sometimes it's just wiser not to go. I remember when we were in Mexico, back in the year 2000, And we interposed at the door of a death camp there in Mexico City. Four days later, there was a massive demonstration in Mexico City. Tens of thousands of Mexicans showed up for it. And the Mexicans, who we were working with, forbid us Americans to go there. They said, they will kill you. We had been in all the newspapers at this point. And we, of course, were like, no way. We want to go. We love this stuff. (laughs) And like, we wouldn't miss this for the world. They were adamant, you're not going, you're staying here, they will kill you. And when they came back later that night, and we watched the news in the evening, it was a full-blown melee. People beating the living, snot out of each other. Those opposing abortion, those for abortion, massive physical fighting, clashes, beatings, all kinds of stuff. And then I realized why they didn't want us to go there. <laughs> you know, I'm like... It's a little different than America, and it was actually refreshing to see some passion, you know what I mean, in that regard, because Americans are just like, they'll accommodate themselves to anything, it's like good dopey Germans, you know what I mean? Or, or, or just sit here like little flower pots, <laughs> and just go along with all the evil, <laughs> yeah, and it's despicable to watch, and you've got to watch it year after year, decade after decade, 59 years of it now watching them accommodate themselves to evil while they sit in their buildings like little flower pots. So I was refreshed seeing that type of passion amongst these Mexicans, particularly those who are against abortion. You know what I mean? It was good to see that. And of course all the churchmen in America would say, "Oh, oh, oh this can't be of God." And and oh, let us get our Bible. And figure out a way to justify our inactivity and to condemn anyone who would actually actually get worked up about people being murdered, you know. It is despicable to watch these people. Did I mention the word despicable? Because it is. It's despicable. So the whole city's filled with confusion. Paul wants to go. Then look what verse 31 says. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. There's thousands upon thousands of people there. Here's what I want you to notice about verse 31 here. What do you notice about verse 31? Magistrates were the friends of Paul. (laughs) That's, right? Right? Paul is friends with magistrates. Remember I've pointed that out before, that the early Christians were constantly coming into contact with the magistrates, which they were fine with because they knew the gospel and God's rule is both for individuals and for nations. Luke only gives us little glimpses of the interaction with the magistrates, and I made the assertion that surely Paul and the early Christians said much more to the magistrates about what their. Duty is in the sight of Christ, regarding their office, and things of that nature. And now, here we see it plainly. Some of the officials of Asia, quote, who were his friends, unquote. He spent much time with the magistrates. We see that in the book of Acts. We know there had to be much more that he said to them, other than the little glimpses we have of what Luke recorded. These friends were known as Asiarchs. These magistrates were known as Asiarchs, which was a department of state, a department of the state of Rome, a department of the Roman Empire. They fomented emperor worship as part of their given magisterial task. Paul had been there for over two years at this point. Paul had conducted mission to the magistrates. They were his friends. They knew him. And they tried to convince him not to go there. Paul conducted mission to the magistrates. Remember his very first convert? Who was his very first convert? Do you remember? In Acts 13, Sergius Paulus, a magistrate, was the first convert of Paul's first missionary journey. And yet we live in the midst of a Christianity that tells us we should have nothing to do with the magistrates. God doesn't have anything to say about governmental matters. That's the secular realm, and we should just be happy with any scraps we get off Longshank's table. That's garbage. Early churchmen knew that Christ's rule invades every inch of this planet, including matters of civil government. And here we see it again. Early churchmen took the gospel to the magistrates, spent time with the magistrates, wrote to the magistrates, spoke with the magistrates. So it says, And they drew Alexander, oh, pardon me, verse 32. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together at all. It was like, there's always that group of people. Oh, there's a riot going on. (laughs) let's join in, you know what I mean? Every time a riot breaks out in any city here in America, a bunch of people join in, they really don't know what the riot's about, they're just glad they can riot. You know, it can act crazy, and destroy stuff and act dopey, you know? I think it's just part of man's nature to want to do that from time to time anyway. (laughs) You know? I've I've been amazed. I've been watching things that have been um, said, even by unbelievers, and it's like, there seems to be this catharsis within human beings to want to just destroy everything and start over, just annihilate the whole earth and start over. Have you noticed that amongst people? Comes out in their movies, comes out in their writings. Um, for some Christians, it comes out in their eschatology. You know all this type of stuff. You know, but it's just in man to want to just. And I've thought of that at time, from time to time. You look at the insanity of it all, and you're just like. Boy, I wish God would just come in with a guy like Attila the Hun or a guy like Shishka the One-Eyed and just, you know, kill everybody. I'll <laughs> you know, just start fresh. A good nuclear bombing, you know? Don't worry, we can edit all these parts out of the sermon later, okay? But I'm just telling you these things. Um, there is that propensity within man to want to see it all cleaned up and start out fresh, even amongst pagan people. Of course, the fresh thing they want to start out is just more of the same wicked, evil stuff. So verse 32 says, Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude. Um, he was obviously a Jewish leader. There was a huge Jewish um, contingent there. They had their own synagogue. They were in Ephesus. Ephesus the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. He probably wanted to get up there and say, yeah, all these guys, Paul and all them, we don't have nothing to do with those guys, just so you know. (laughs) That's probably what he wanted to say, because there was only two groups of people that were against all the idolatry in the city. It was the Jews and the Christians. So they knew they were getting tarred with whatever brush the Christians were getting tarred with, so the Jews are like, hey, get up there, Alexander. Say something, you know, to make sure they know we're not with those guys. But look what happens. But when they found out that he was a Jew, <laughs> all with one voice, cried out for about two hours, great as Diana of the Ephesians. Now you might think to yourself, okay, this is hyperbole. Luke, nobody yelled the same thing out for two hours straight. I've witnessed it with my own eyeballs. One time we went to UW-Whitewater. The sodomites came out, probably about 80 of them. They had plastic um, five-gallon things with sticks, and they pounded on those and screamed the same slogans over and over again for two full hours. Almost like demonic. So I totally believe Luke. Luke. That they did this for two full hours. That's how much people love their sin, how crazed they become. That they would behave like that. It goes on and it says, And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, this is where the city official intervenes. On behalf of Christ and Christianity. It says, And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana of the image which fell down from Zeus? As I mentioned, Diana was depicted as a grotesque, multi-breasted woman. Many believe she was formulated from a meteor that fell in the area, as it says there, fell down from Zeus. Scholars note that meteorites became objects of worship in Troy, Pessinus, Enna, and Emesa. So here with Diana is a very definite possibility that this was a meteor. The magistrates intervene in this situation. Look Look what it goes on and says. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here, who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar there being no reason which we may give to account for this this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The magistrate intervenes for Christ and Christianity here. Something I've always noticed in my reading of history is how man is always weaving his web, and yet the Lord is building his kingdom in the midst of all that. And the Lord uses their systems about man's systems, establishments, governments, plots, and thinking for his purposes. I've noticed that in my reading of history. Why does the city clerk intervene? He doesn't intervene because he's a good guy who loves Christ and the Christians. That isn't why he intervenes. He makes it clear nobody can deny this about Diana, <laughs> you know. He does it because he fears how Rome might respond to the riot. That's why he does it. As he says in verse 40, For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. Account to who? Rome! That's who. Who didn't like riots and uproars (laughs) and would put them down And punish those who are responsible for them. The Lord uses the machinations and systems of men for his purposes. I've seen that throughout my reading of history. And this is why Psalm 2 says, He sits in the heavens and laughs. While they're busy doing all their stupid stuff, He's in the heavens laughing. He is. Ever hear that term, the best laid plans of mice and men? You do know what that means, right? Man in all his arrogance and pride thinks he's way better than a mouse, right? But in the end, his plans are about equal with a mouse. <laughs> you know, in the grand scheme of things, all his scheming, all his plotting, all his stuff end up failing. The best laid plans of mice and men. I say that to my kids all the time when I observe life. Ah. Uh, so anyway, let's look at Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. Remember what I've said? What's going on in America with the magistrates and the businessmen? They're at war with Christ. That is the ultimate warfare. They hate him and his rule. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And then look, verse 4 says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. They think they're so smart, but they're just that stupid. Look how smart they think they are. Have you read their transgendered stuff? Have you read all their stuff that they've created here in this hellhole called America? For the last 150 years it's laughable we're in derision we think we're so arrogant we think we're so smart and man is so stupid then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure if it bothers you how messed up things are do you see here it bothers him If it doesn't bother you, you have to ask yourself why. Maybe you've been feeding on worthless 21st century American Christianity so long that it doesn't bother you when you see his law and word being impugned by the governments of men and by the people who inhabit this nation. It bothers him, and he will speak to it in his time, with his wrath, And he shall distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king, talking about Christ, on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son, talking about Jesus. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And Christianity has been doing that to the governments of men for 2,000 years and continues to do that. And you see it happening in many nations around the earth. You don't see it happening in America. You don't see it happening in the West right now because they're all in rebellion. The church has become a whore. It's only good to be thrown on the ground, trampled under the foot of men. And they've all rallied against Christ and Christianity. But in other nations, other countries, other continents, Christianity is growing by leaps and bounds. Governments conforming their laws to the laws of God. We are in the midst of deconstruction here in America. There will come a day of reconstruction once God has let loose his wrath upon this nation. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. In other words, speak to the magistrates. Here's the psalmist speaking to the mag- God's people have always spoken to the magistrates regarding their office. Serve the Lord with fear. There's that word fear again. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry And you perish in the way. You want to make law contrary to his law? He's long-suffering. He's gentle. He's kind. He gives space to repent. But at some point, that ends. And when he unleashes his wrath on a nation, people don't even know what has hit them. They're all walking around like a bunch of pompous asses today. They have no idea what's right around the corner in all their arrogance and it's a goodness from God when he brings his judgment on a people like this. Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Amen? So I'll tell you, I meet with a lot of magistrates, and um, if you want to know whether I'm upbeat about that or kind of forlorn, I'm kind of forlorn. Because men love theory, but they hate application. And I run into man after man after man after man as a magistrate who talks a good game, but they have no follow-through whatsoever. In the end, they want to be liked. In the end, they don't want to make waves. In the end, they're not willing to pay the price of interposition. They're just not. So there is one man I met like that who who isn't like that, who, who actually loves Christ, wants to do right by him, and is willing to take upon himself the suffering that comes as a magistrate for interposition. And that's a legislator up in Alaska known as David Eastman. So right now, David Eastman has all the wicked against him. He has all his GOP allies against him. He's been removed from all his committees. He has to take a time out. They want nothing to do with him. So I wrote to him when I saw all this in the news and encouraged him. And it's good that I encouraged him, but I didn't need to encourage him. He's totally head is set like flint. He knows exactly that this is part of the process when you take a stand. This has to happen so that good people will wake up and see what really is going on as he's mistreated. And people are figuring it out. Because David is a good man. I first met David when me and Clara were brought up to uh, Alaska to speak throughout the state on the doctrine of lesser magistrate. That was three years ago. He was just running for office then. He was on fire about the doctrine of lesser magistrate and interposition. He said, I'm going to do this as soon as I take office. He did it, he's done it three years in a row. Incredible. And he's not backing down. Do you know how rare men like that are? They're massively rare. I'll tell you, you need to pray for me because like, going over to Kansas and Nebraska and meeting with these magistrates and the magistrate I have to meet with here in Wisconsin, I'm reaching the point where it's like I almost can't even have the passion I once had because all I see with these guys is these are the cream of the crop who I get to You do understand that. Guys who claim to no know Christ, want limited government, hate baby murder, you know, and all the other evils in our land. It's, it's depressing. It's depressing to be around them. It's like you feel, here's how I am, I almost feel like I'm just going through an outward charade. That's what I really what I feel, and I don't want to feel that way. Remember I once told you, some of you probably weren't here then, how I felt that as a young churchman, how I, American Christianity made me feel like I was just a showman, going through a charade each week, you know, going through this, you know, and how I didn't want to be that. and how when God arrested my heart, convicted me, and I began to learn things that American Christianity didn't teach me, but some good men of God did, and actually began to apply my Christianity to every area of life. That delivered me from feeling like I was a showman, that I was putting on a charade each week of utter nonsense. Because if you don't love him and you don't live for him in your daily lives, that doesn't burn within here. All this is nothing but a charade. It's nothing but a show. It's despicable. And he even said it through his prophets, how despicable it is to him when we put on the outward show, but our hearts aren't with them, And that's really where we're at in American Christianity. People are dropping like flies, embracing evil. Marriage is being destroyed. People who name the name of Christ, pointing at people who truly love Christ and saying the most foul things about them. Well, they're the scumbags. It's disturbing to watch. And so if you're not on fire for him and you don't hold close to him and you don't keep your family close to you and keep them close to him and lead in that regard and show by example in that regard, you're doomed. You're doomed. You're going to become like all the rest. that are just falling by the wayside, left and right. I read a lot of things from academic circles within Christianity. I've always noticed that that comes before it becomes popular within Christianity. And what's being written at the academic level is horrifying. It has been horrifying for over two decades for me. And I've watched it all filter down to modern Christianity, to popular Christianity, through the academic circles, through the churchmen, and the professors and all them. You have to draw close to Christ. You have to live your life for him. You have to do it with your family. You have to do it with your brothers and sisters in Christ that are going to be true to him, that want to continue to be faithful to him. There's fewer and fewer people to rally with. This thing is on its way out. This ship, what you know and is common to you, is over with. This thing is breaking apart, this ship called America, is breaking apart. It's done with. And you better understand that, and you better understand where your loyalties lie, and they better lie with him first. Or you're going to be swept along in all kinds of crazy stuff. You will be the weirdo if you're not already. There's there's areas here in Milwaukee, where you, in Wisconsin, you're a weirdo for being a Christian, and it's growing like crazy across this nation. Have you looked at the insane lot of people they put up for the Democratic presidential candidate? If that doesn't tell you something, you're blind. It is over with. The people in America will have to exercise what other good men have exercised in the past or else just live as abject slaves till the day they die. You will either sacrifice and die or live as free men and the forces of darkness will be pushed back Or, you'll just become their slave. I've been amazed at how much manhood men can give up. It's disturbing to watch. Is there anything that'll tick you off? Is there anything that'll make you stand up and fight? And don't don't go do something rash, because of what I'm saying here. Don't go do something by yourself rash, at all. Here's what I've learned from history. There will be a spark against wickedness and evil. And when the spark hits, you need to join in the fire. And you'll see that it's God breathed, that it's God working in the affairs of men. It'll be evident to you that it's God working in the affairs of men. This evil cannot sustain itself. And my heart breaks over it all because as much as I, I would just love to be able to just live like Christians lived 50 years ago, 100 years ago, where you could be indifferent and just kind of sit on your porch, pet your dog, say sweet things to your wife and watch your kids ride their bikes up and down the street. Those days are gone. There's some rough days coming and everybody knows it. Everyone with the brain knows it. So stay faithful and true to Christ. Teach his word to men. This is your number one weapon. The word of God. It's the sword that he gives us. Quit yourselves like men. That's a King James... Version word. Quit yourself. It doesn't mean quit being men. It means act like men. Behave like men. We need to do it now with our families, with everything that's going on. We need to take a public stand against evil. We need to take these whore churchmen to task because they are abundant. And we have to understand you may have to do things that you thought you would just get to talk about what other men did. That's how bad things are. And if you think I overstate the situation, you're deceived. And you're stupid. And you obviously don't read history. And you obviously aren't in tune reading anything from an academic level, because the wicked are talking about it at an academic level. The righteous are talking about it at academic level. It's coming like a freight train on this nation. Because evil cannot be allowed to go on like it has in this country and not be responded to. The interposition of the lesser magistrates would correct the problem so much easier. But I'm sad to tell you, as of yet, it hasn't happened. So we keep teaching the doctrine, Right? hoping that there are those kind of men that eventually show up, or something places itself in God's providence where they rise up and they remember those teachings, yeah, what's your magistrate? You can ask Jason. I told him, if I sell 20,000 copies of this book, I will feel like I've reached my goal. 20,000. It's sold over 30,000 now. It's affected and impacted many people. That's just the book. There's all the teachings on it out there. Extremely important. But the people we have right now, so far none of them are willing to do it. None of them. Except a handful. Like Joseph Silk, like David Eastman, like Kurt Nisley, And everybody else leaves them hanging. Sickening to watch. So, I'm grieved in my heart over the state of churchmen, and I'm grieved in my heart over the state of the magistrates. Let's stand up, we'll close in a word of prayer.